0: Well, we're in John chapter fifteen and starting at verse sixteen today. So let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your your love for us that you have for us. And Lord we just love the the truth that we're learning here that you are the true vine and our purpose in life is to abide in you and everything else just happens all by itself. Your spirit does the work through us. It produces that fruit. And all we need to do is love you and obey your commandment to love other people. And that fruit will come. So we just pray that you help us to just um, sit back and relax and let your spirit do all the work. And as it says in Hebrews, he who has ceased from his works has also entered into his rest. And that's what it means to the fulfillment of a Sabbath is to Cease from our work, cease from our self-effort and enter into your rest where we don't work anymore. It's you who works in us. It's Christ who lives in me. So thank you for this truth in Jesus' name. Help us to abide. Amen. All right. Jesus and the disciples are walking from the upper room and they're not yet at the Kidron Valley. He's told them that I am the true vine. That's the eighth ego in me or I am statement and we learned about our purpose in life is to abide in him and consequently bear much fruit for the glory of the father as we are transformed by the power of the spirit into Jesus image and there are many fruits for example winning lost souls holiness financial giving helping practically giving praise to his name and most importantly the fruit of the spirit love And also, if we bear fruit, it's good, both now and later. Now, because it smooths out our relationships, it's much easier to get on with someone who's bearing the fruit of the Spirit, who's joyful, who's gentle, who's kind, who's patient, versus someone who's not bearing fruit, who's difficult to get along with. So, then in heaven, we get rewarded for the things that God has done through us. And it says in Philippians that Jesus is the one who both wills and does. He works in us both to will and to do. So he gives us the desires, and then he gives us the strength to put those desires into practice. And then we get rewarded. (laughs) So it's a pretty good deal. And Jesus spoke about abiding in his love, which means keeping his commandments. Love is not an emotion, but a choice, an action. And so we know that we abide in God's love by our obedience, not by our emotional experiences. And Jesus also gives us his joy. And consider he's walking toward the garden where he will be betrayed, and it is here where he should have been, humanly speaking, as far as we would think, depressed, despondent. But no, it's here that he speaks about his joy. And the quote from last week, The joy of Jesus is not the pleasure of a life at ease. It is the exhilaration of being right with God and consciously walking in his love and care. We can have that joy and have it as an abiding presence. This is the joy that Jesus gives to us. And we're watching Richard Wurmbrandt. And, you know, he's being persecuted. He's a pastor in Romania back in the 50s where they had the Communist Party come in and they're beating him up, and they're going to try and use him as an example of, you know, a pastor who was standing for the truth who's turned, but he wouldn't turn. And the guard comes in, one particular part of the story, the guard comes in. He says, Oh, you're praying again. You're praying for your family. It's not going to do much good. And he says, No, no, I'm praying for you. I'm praying that you can be saved, and I forgive you for beating me up. I forgive you for torturing me. I forgive you for doing those things to my family. And the guard was just amazed. So let's read from John 15, 16 to 27. And I just mentioned uh, Richard as an example of the joy that we can have, even in difficult circumstances. Jesus had this joy as he was going to the cross. Richard had this joy in him, and he had this spirit in him, and he just wanted to forgive his captors, forgive his torturers. All right, let's read starting from verse 16 in John 15. It says, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should remain, that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give you. These things I command you, that you love one another. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were one of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would have no sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would have no sin. But now they have seen and also hated both me and my Father. But this happened that the word might be fulfilled which was written in their law. They hated me without a cause. But when the Helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. And you will also bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. So verse 16, the first part of it says you did not choose me, but I chose you. So this is divine election. Very straight out. God chose us. That's what it says. So how does that fit with us choosing God? Jesus says in John three sixteen, Whosoever believes Okay. It says there that we need to choose. Here it says that Jesus chooses us. Well, I've got a quote from Chuck Smith and it, in a very short amount of time, it gives us a good perspective on this difficult area. So it says, I chose you. This enters into the difficult area of divine election. You did not choose me, but I chose you. This is something I don't think any person really fully understands. How do The sovereignty of God and divine election line up with human responsibility. How are they reconciled? There are some people who think they understand this, but when they think they understand, it is usually because they've watered down one concept or the other. Either they emphasize divine election and the sovereignty of God at the expense of human responsibility and choice, as the Calvinists do, or they recognize human responsibility while denying the reality of divine election, as do the Armenians. Each extreme is correct in what they assert, but in error in what they deny. We shouldn't deny the sovereignty of God. We should revel in the fact that God chose us before the foundation of the world. But it is also wrong to ignore the responsibility that each person has to answer the call of God. So i just read that last paragraph again. There are some people who think they understand this, but when they think they understand, it is usually because they've watered down one concept or the other. Either they emphasize divine election and the sovereignty of God at the expense of human responsibility and choice, as the Calvinists do, or they recognize human responsibility while denying the reality of divine election, as do the Armenians. Each extreme is correct in what they assert, but in error in what they deny. We shouldn't deny the sovereignty of God. We should revel in the fact that God chose us before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1.4. But it is also wrong to ignore the responsibility that each person has to answer the call of God. So, I like the way he puts it there. Nice and simple. You don't have to argue, you just accept what the Bible says. Can we understand it? I don't think so. It's it's like the Trinity. Like a lot of the attributes of God, a lot of them are beyond our understanding. Okay, God is bigger than us. He continues on this quote, It is also important that we acknowledge that God makes the invitation to everyone. He did not only send his Son for a chosen few, but he so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. John 3.16 His invitation is always, whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. Revelation 22.17 Whoever means whoever. (laughs) And my invitation is open to all, but you must respond to the invitation. The door to heaven says, whoever desires, But once we get inside, we'll realize that he chose us. You may say, I don't think that is fair. What if I'm just not chosen? Well, why don't you accept him? Then you will be chosen. But I don't want to accept Jesus. Then why do you care if you were chosen or not? (laughs) If you want to become a Christian, you can. Okay? Whosoever desires. All right? Now, Moving on, and the next part of that verse, and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain. So Jesus tells us what's going on and he tells us what's going to happen in the future, but he also ordains us to be involved in ministry presently, like right now, so and appointed you so that you should go and bear fruit. So each one of us has been appointed by Jesus to a ministry. Whatever it might be, it's something that God has appointed us to. Now, for more public offices, it doesn't really matter if you've been accredited or ordained by some church body, because here... The main thing is that you're ordained by God. Someone said, whether or not you've been credentialed by some ordination council or church body is irrelevant, for on the basis of this passage, you are ordained or appointed just as much as Billy Graham. God ordained him for that ministry, and it's important that we recognize the calling that God has on people, and that's what we do. But why do we do it? Well. It's basically, uh, you know, if you want to marry, you know, be a celebrant or something like that, then you'd have to have this qualification, basically, and that's basically all it is. If you go into most parts of the world, like you got the the house churches in Vietnam, for example, and they're not ordained through some church; they just, you know, they they become a Christian and they start sharing, and they just they just do it. So there are some safeguards in doing that but there's also some dangers in doing that too, so I won't go into it now. Now, I just want to use Paul and Barnabas as an example of being ordained by God. Okay, Just think of all the long process that Paul and Barnabas went through so they could serve as missionaries. They first had to apply to the Antioch Missions Board and submit a resume complete with references describing their past Christian service and a letter of recommendation from their pastor They also must include a copy of their degree from a reputable Bible college. Then they had to go through three rounds of interviews where they had to compete with other applicants who also wanted to go. Then they had to show how they were going to raise support for themselves. Then they had to take courses in cross-cultural missions. Finally, once they had been signed off, they could leave. (laughs) No. Okay. So what actually happened? Well, I'm going to put it up for you. Acts 13, 2 and 3. As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then having fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them away. Done. Holy Spirit says, I've appointed you. Off you go. Here's another story to illustrate this. As Napoleon was talking to a group of his high-ranking officials, His horse, standing nearby, spooked and bolted. A quick-thinking private, observing the scene, pursued the runaway on his own steed and was able to return Napoleon's horse safely. "'Well done, Captain,' said Napoleon upon his return. The private, with eyes as big as saucers, saluted smartly and said, "'Yes, sir.' Then he went immediately to the supply tent, got himself a captain's uniform, and moved into the officer's quarters.' He never said, I don't deserve it. I should have worked my way up through the ranks. I need to earn this. No, he just said, yes, sir. So likewise, the Lord calls us friend and ordained minister of whatever gift or opportunity he has for us. And all that's left for us to say is, yes, sir. Go do it. And the last part of verse 16, that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give you. Now. If you walked into a store and you purchased $100,000 worth of goods and you tried to put it on David House's account, you wouldn't be able to walk out the store with those goods because they know that I can't pay it, all right? But if you walked into that same store with permission to access Donald Trump's or Bill Gates' account, there would be no problem because the issue isn't how rich you are, but how rich the person whose bank account or account you are drawing from. And that's a beautiful thing about prayer. So as long as what I am asking for is in line with His will, there is no limit for what I can ask for. There's nothing that God won't do for me according to His will. Someone said, We should not expect amazing answers to prayer unless we first pray amazing prayers and not be limited by our human limitations. It's pretty cool, eh? We should not expect amazing answers to prayer unless we first pray amazing prayers and not be limited by our human limitations. So whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give you. So God wants us to ask and he wants to amaze us with his incredible power and generosity. Verse 17, these things I command you that you love one another. So you would think that if we loved one another, we'd be liked. Well, what does the next verse say? If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before I hated you. (laughs) It doesn't make sense, does it? If you are of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. So, if the world loves you, watch out, (laughs) you are not water. Paul told his protege, Timothy, that all who live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution, 2 Timothy 3.12. So if you're living a godly life, it's highly unlikely that you're going to be accepted by the world, by the majority. It just doesn't work that way. And there's lots of Christian music artists who are really good at what they do, but because the mainstream population doesn't like Christian lyrics, they're never ever going to be really popular. And so it's just an example of Even though we might be gifted, the world doesn't recognize us, doesn't like us. In fact, they're going to persecute us. So, as Christians, we can face the worst, recognize that Jesus has been there first, and then press on ahead. And there's a guy called William Borden, he's a missionary, who gave his life for Jesus on the mission field. He said, no reserve, no retreat, no regrets. So he said, no reserve, no retreat, no regrets. He understood that when he goes out to give love, to demonstrate love, as Jesus said just in that previous verse, these things I command you, that you love one another, the world is going to hate you for it. Verse 20. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would have no sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. So First Thessalonians 5.5 says, The reason the world hates us is because we are light. And when light shines, people in the dark get really uneasy. Now, have you ever walked into your kitchen and turned the light on and you see all the cockroaches disappear under the cupboards? <laughs> Hopefully not. Hopefully you got rid of those cockroaches. But that's what they do. If you have cockroaches in your house, they'll come out when the light's off and when you turn the light on, they'll scurry away. There's a verse that we can look at comparing humans to cockroaches. John three eighteen to There is no judgment against anyone who believes in him, Jesus. But anyone who does not believe in him has already been judged for not believing in God's one and only Son. And the judgment is based on this fact. God's light came into the world, but people loved the darkness more than the light, for their actions were evil. All who do evil hate the light and refuse to go near it, for fear their sins will be exposed. But those who do what is right come to the light so others can see that they are doing what God wants. And verse twenty three He who hates me hates my father also. So there's many people who claim to love God. You got the Mormons, you got Jehovah's Witnesses, you've got the Muslims, you got all these people who claim to love God. This statement flies in the face of all those religions because it says He who hates me hates my Father also. If you do not acknowledge Jesus as being God, as being the Savior of the world, then it doesn't matter how many prayers they pray, how many works they do, they hate the Father. It's a very strong statement, this statement. okay, It's non-negotiable. If you don't love me, if you don't acknowledge me, if you hate me, you hate my Father also. So all these people who say they love God, they actually hate him because they've rejected the Son. That's what Jesus is saying here. You reject Jesus, you reject the Father. That's why Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And Jesus says, If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Okay? So to reject Jesus is to reject the Father because Jesus is the Father revealed or manifested to us. And verse 24, If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would have no sin. But now they have seen and also hated both me and my Father. But this happened that the word might be fulfilled, which is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. So this is a quote from the Old Testament they hated me without a cause. And there is no just cause, there's no valid reason for people to hate Jesus and his followers, that's us, the way they do. As I said before, the world hates because its sin is exposed and because they know not the Father or the Son. So Jesus came, he lived a perfect life and because of that the world looks at Jesus and says either accept that As the standard of living, and I uh, need Jesus as my savior, or I reject it. I want to do my own thing. Verse 26. But when the helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. So, and you also will bear witness. So the Holy Spirit will bear witness, and we will bear witness, okay? Christians are not left here just to endure persecution and be hated. I'm going to leave you down there on earth just to, so you can suffer. No. We're here for a reason, okay? And you will also bear witness because you've been with me from the beginning. So the disciples, Jesus gave them a job to do to bear witness to him. That's our job too, in whatever way God wants us to do it. So, joining with the Holy Spirit, we are witnesses to the world of the love and mercy of God, inviting them to join us. And uh, you know these verses. It's good to read them again. 2 Corinthians 5.18-21 All of this is a gift from God, who brought us back to himself through Christ, and God has given us this task of reconciling people to him. For God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sin against them. And he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. He gave us this message. So we are Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. For God made Christ, who never sinned, to be the offering for our sin so that we could be made right with God through Christ. So that's a good expansion of that verse. Now he will testify of me and you will also bear witness. So, without the witness of the Spirit, our witness is powerless and useless. The Spirit is the one who works in people's hearts. But without our witness, without us doing what God wants us to do, the Spirit is restricted in his means of expression. God intends to work with man in partnership. We are God's fellow laborers. If the world can't see us loving each other and bearing fruit, How are they going to know about Jesus? The Spirit can speak to people's hearts, but He chooses to use us. They are cracked pots to shine through and reveal His glory to the world. Now, He will testify of me, so the Spirit will testify of Jesus. Everything the Holy Spirit does is consistent with the testimony and nature of Jesus. His job is to tell us and show us who Jesus is. Now, if spiritual phenomena happen that are not consistent with the nature of Jesus or are not written in the New Testament, in the Gospels and Acts and the Epistles, then it isn't the Holy Spirit doing it. He is the one who will testify of Jesus in all that he does. The Spirit will lead us into all truth. One way to check, because people will often claim, oh, the Spirit said this and. Some people have said, oh, the Spirit told me to divorce my wife. No, that's not right. All right, chapter 16. We're just going to cover the first seven verses. So chapter 16, 1 to 7. These things I have spoken to you that you should not be made to stumble. They will put you out of the synagogues. Yes, the time is coming that whoever kills you will think that he offers God service. And these things they will do to you because they have not known the Father nor me. But these things I have told you, that when the time comes, you may remember that I told you of them. And these things I did not say to you at the beginning because I was with you. But now I go away to him who sent me, and none of you ask me, Where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. So starting at verse 1. These things I have spoken to you that you should not be made to stumble. They will put you out of the synagogues. Yes, the time is coming that whoever kills you will think that he offers God service. And these things they will do to you because they have not known the Father nor me. So remember Jesus said, I am the true Fine, They were being taken away from their, their temple worship. And Jesus says, you, you need to identify with me, not with Judaism, but with me. So they're going to be put out of the synagogues. They're going to be kicked out it will be taken off that old vine and put into a new one. It's a new covenant. The old covenant is gone. The new covenant is here. Now, it says, And the time is coming that whoever kills you will think that he offers God service. Now, who's a really good example of this? Paul. Yeah, Paul's the ultimate example of killing people in the name of God. But you know what? That's been going on for centuries, for the last 2,000 years. People killing people, persecuting people in the name of God. Most of the time, God is not known to the persecutors. These people who are doing the persecuting, the hurting people, they don't know God, but they think they do. And like the Jews, they rejected Jesus so that they'd also rejected the Father. And they're persecuting Christians thinking they're doing for God. Now it says, These things I have spoken to you that you should not be made to stumble. So Jesus is warning us because it does come as a great shock that the gospel, being so glorious, is hated so passionately. Such a beautiful thing, such a wonderful thing, the salvation of our souls, how it can happen, why it can happen, what God has done for us, this love story, And yet it is hated so passionately. And so Jesus is warning us that we should not stumble. We should not be surprised when we are hated. So verse 4. But these things I have told you, that when the time comes, you may remember that I told you of them. And these things I did not say to you at the beginning, because I was with you. But now I go away to him who sent me, and none of you asked me, Where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. So the disciples didn't understand, didn't grasp what Jesus was saying. He knew that due to the ministry of the Holy Spirit, they would eventually understand. And so he continues to teach the disciples with confidence, not in them to understand, but in the Holy Spirit to bring understanding. And he says, Because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart so the disciples could only see the sorrow of Jesus leaving. But Jesus' departure was an essential step in their growth as disciples. There's a quote, The braver and more perfect disciple is he who can walk by faith and not by sight only. And the guy's name is Bernard. Verse 7, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, The helper will not come to you, but if I depart, I will send him to you. So now we come to this phrase, it is to your advantage that I go away. So this had to be hard for the disciples to believe. They loved Jesus, they depended on Jesus, they had given all for Jesus, they suffered the loss of social status, income and more for his sake, family, etc. Can you imagine how they felt when Jesus told them he was leaving and going back to the Father? Now think about practically, right? When a loved one is about to die, we often think that it's best to let death take its course. There's, for example, the body racked with cancer. We say it'd be better for them to go and stop the suffering. It is to their advantage to go away. But when someone we love is dying, we don't think that it's to our advantage that they go away. <laughs> we never think that. We want them to stay here, okay? So, just trying to contrast what Jesus is saying. He's saying, it's to your advantage that I go away. So, with a loved one, we want them to stay. They're a part of our lives. We love them, but realize it's for their best. But Jesus says here again, it's not for his advantage, but he tells the disciples, it's for your advantage that I go away. Now, if the disciples really understood what was about to happen, it would be even harder for them to believe. So. To your advantage that Jesus is arrested, to your advantage that Jesus' ministry of teaching and miracles is stopped, to your advantage that Jesus is beaten, to your advantage that Jesus is mocked, to your advantage that Jesus is sentenced to execution. To your advantage that Jesus is nailed to a cross, to your advantage that Jesus dies in the company of criminals, to your advantage that his lifeless body is laid in a cold grave. How does that help me? Why is that to my advantage? And he says, but because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Now, Jesus is telling them hard things, hard things for them to understand, and he knows how they felt. So when Jesus has something hard to tell us, he knows it is hard. He understands. We may still need to hear it, or we always need to hear it, and we may wish he would back away from it, but he won't. He will tell it to us, and he will tell it to us in love because he is a compassionate high priest. So what about application for us? Has there been a time in your life when God has done a work in your life that you don't understand? Has sorrow filled your heart? Well, just remember that God isn't mad at you. He isn't punishing you. He wants you to know that all this is to your advantage, that it will work for your good. That's what Jesus is saying. It's to your advantage. It's for your good. It says in verses 6 and 7, But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. And verse 7 starts with, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. So, nevertheless, this word... I quote here, this is one of the great words of the Bible. Nevertheless, it means despite all of that. Despite all of that. Yes, Jesus knew they were filled with sorrow because of what he told them, but despite all of that, he wanted them to know that it was for their good. It was to their advantage. Now, I tell you the truth. Now, why did Jesus say this? (laughs) Is it because he lied most of the time? (laughs) You know? I told you all those lies before, but now I'm telling you the truth? No. No, it's not it at all. He wants them to trust him in something that's hard to understand. Okay, Jesus is saying, you need to trust me here. When he says, I tell you the truth, it's like him saying, trust me. He wants them to make a concerted effort to trust him at this point. So it's our will. Trusting God-belief in Jesus is something that we have to choose to do, especially in those hard times. It's a very difficult choice. We must make the choice to trust him, that whatever he's putting us through is to our advantage, that it will benefit us. And then, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. So Jesus is telling them that this is not for no reason. I have a plan. Now, they couldn't understand his plan. They couldn't see his plan. This has never happened before. So for us with 2,000 years of hindsight, it's easy to say, well, come on, don't you understand? When Jesus went away, he sent the Holy Spirit. He has a broader and more effective ministry. Come on, it's easy. But not before it happened. They couldn't see. They didn't have a clue what Jesus was talking about. But Jesus knew what he was talking about and he knew how it was true that it was to their advantage. Now, why in their case was it to their advantage? Well, and for us too. Okay, it's not just for them, but this is for us. What are the advantages? I keep saying it's for their advantage, for your good. But what are the good things? Well, Matthew 18.20, For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. So. That's not true if Jesus is on earth and the Holy Spirit is not sent, okay, because he can only be at one place at one time. So for us, it's far better that Jesus is in heaven and the Holy Spirit can be everywhere at once. Secondly, it's better because now we can have a more trusting relationship with God. If Jesus were here bodily, it'd be really quite difficult to have to exercise faith. You know, because he's right there. Prove to me that Jesus exists. Over there. (laughs) You know, piece of cake. Doing miracles, all that kind of stuff. And there he is. Okay. There's not much faith required to believe in Jesus if he's here. But when we can't see him, it's different. And so we have a more trusting relationship with God. And 2 Corinthians 5.16 says, At one time we thought of Christ merely from a human point of view. How differently we know him now. So God wants us to walk by faith and not by sight. And with Jesus here, we'd be walking by sight and not so much by faith. So it's to our advantage. Now, The third point, the third advantage is this. The disciples before Jesus left were confused, afraid, selfish, and self-centered. Now we've been through what they were talking about in the upper room, you know, who's the greatest, all the different things. A few examples. So, hours before the crucifixion, they're in the upper room, he's been with them for three years, he's sharing final instructions, and he says to them, most assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me, in John thirteen twenty one, Ask him which one of us it is, whispered Peter to John. And Jesus says, It is he to whom I shall give a piece of bread when I have dipped it, then handed the bread to Judas Iscariot and said, What you do, do quickly. But the disciples didn't get it. They thought Judas was going to buy more food for the celebration. Now, it's pretty obvious. This is the person who's going to betray me. Right here, sitting next to me. Didn't get it. Why couldn't they see? Jesus says in verse run about 1337, I'm going away and you can't come with me for a while. And then Peter pipes up and says, What do you mean we can't come with you? I'm going to go wherever you go. I'm going to die if necessary to be with you. <laughs> and Jesus says, Oh Peter, before the rooster crows, you will have denied me three times, but let not your heart be troubled. In my Father's house are many mansions, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And then Thomas turns around and says, we don't know where you're going. You see the, the lack of understanding in the disciples? They hadn't Jesus just said, I'm going to my father's house. And Jesus went on to say, if you had known me, you should have known my father also. But then Philip says, well, show us a the father then. It's like, wouldn't you be pulling your hair out at this stage? You know, this lack of understanding, this blindness. Jesus had just said, you're seeing the father when you see me. And Philip still says, "Will show us a father. And then he says, When the Spirit comes, he'll abide with you and be with you forever. But Judas, not Iscariot, said, How are you going to manifest or your, reveal yourself to us and not to the world? He just told them, I'm going to put my Spirit in you. I'm going to reveal myself to you through my Spirit. And then he asked the question, well, How are you going to do it? It's like, ah. So from a human point of view, if I were in Jesus' sandals, and I didn't have God's patience and foresight, foreknowledge, I would have wondered if they would ever amount to anything in the kingdom of God. I mean, wouldn't you? They didn't have a clue. How could you be so silly? How can you be so blind? You know what? We're all like that at one stage. And it's only the Spirit that makes a difference. Now, think about this personal application. Maybe that's the way you feel about your wife or husband, your teenage daughter who's rebelling. Your friend who's just not seeing. Maybe it's in that situation. But maybe it's us in that situation who are rebelling. But watch what Jesus does. He continues to teach them, confident in due time, that the Spirit will put it all together. Now, let's look at them after Jesus left. After the Helper had come. After the Holy Spirit is in them. They are wise, surrendered, bold, and giving. So, was what Jesus said true? Was it to their advantage that he left and the Spirit came? Absolutely. So, bringing it back to us, God often puts us in situations that we don't understand, tells us that it is good for us, and says, trust me. And that's our choice. Are we going to trust him? He tells us, this is good for you. Is what's best for you? I have a plan. So remember that at this point the disciples understood very little. They were confused and blind to what was going on around them. And the same is often true for us. God does not reveal everything to us. Sometimes he puts us in places where we can't see anything. And he just says, it's okay. Trust me, I have a plan. It's going to work out good. It's to your advantage that you go through the circumstance or trial. This is all part of my plan to transform you from glory to glory into my image by the Spirit. So I've just got a couple of verses to finish on. 2 Corinthians 3.18 I'm going to read it from two versions. First, the New King James. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord and the Amplified Version, and all of us, as with unveiled face, because we continued to behold in the word of God, as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are constantly being transfigured into his very own image in ever-increasing splendor, and from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Transfigured. Metamorphosis. That's that word there. Jesus was transfigured; he was metamorphosized. Okay, like the caterpillar into butterfly. And I just want to finish with some of the most realistic, down to earth, and yet most encouraging verses in Scripture. Who knows where it says that we can be slaughtered like sheep, but it's good. Who knows where in the Bible where it says that. We're going to be slaughtered like sheep, but it's all good. It's in the New Testament. I'm thinking of Romans chapter 8. So Romans chapter 8, verses 28 to 29, it's on the screen. So it says, And we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. For God knew his people in advance, and he chose them to become like his son. That's our purpose in life, to become like Jesus. So that his son would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And having chosen them, he called them to come to him. And having called them, he gave them right standing with himself. And having given them right standing, he gave them his glory. What shall we say about such wonderful things as these? If God is for us, who can ever be against us? Since he did not spare even his own son, but gave him up for us all, won't he also give us everything else? Who dares accuse us whom God has chosen for his own? No one. God himself has given us right standing with himself. Who then will condemn us? No one. For Christ Jesus died for us, and was raised to life for us, and he's sitting at the place of honor at God's right hand, pleading for us. Can anything ever separate us from God's love? Now wouldn't you love it if the verse stopped there? It'd be a pretty good Christian walk. But what does it go on with? So verse 35, can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Does it mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or are persecuted, or hungry, or destitute, or in danger, or threatened with death. As the scriptures say, for your sake we are killed every day. We are being slaughtered like sheep. No, despite these things. Remember that word I talked about? Nevertheless. Despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ, who loved us. And I'm convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today, nor our worries about tomorrow, nor even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. So, to finish, God has a plan. God wants us to trust him, even though we don't understand And what are we trusting him for? That it's going to work for our good. So Father, help us to remember what you're doing for us, what you're doing in us, what you're doing through us, how you're changing us, how you're using us to be witnesses in this world, to shine and show people your glory so they can see Jesus in us. We are a living epistle. We are a letter but not written in ink. We are a living letter. People look at us and they can see Jesus. Well, they should be able to see Jesus. And as we get more and more transformed and closer to you, then they can see you more and more clearly. So I pray that you help us to love each other deeply, to forgive each other, to have compassion on each other, to be patient with each other. And Lord, as you died to Bring us into relationship with yourself, you also died to bring us into relationship with each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. So help us to remember that and that we grow best when we're together. And we go through these trials best when we're together as well. When the grace of God is demonstrated and shared amongst the brothers and sisters. So help us as we go through the hard times and we don't understand what's going on to trust you, that you have a plan, and that it's all going to work out for our good. We're going to be more like you. We're going to be made more beautiful. So we just pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.